Hello, and welcome to Physical Attraction. This episode, we have an exciting guest to talk to. Professor Rebecca Willis is a professor in practice at Lancaster University, where she is working intensely on climate policy and climate politics, and how politicians respond to the issue of climate change. She was involved in organising the Climate Assembly UK, which we covered in some of the earlier episodes, and has written a wonderful book, Too Hot to Handle, The Democratic Challenge of Climate Change, about the democratic challenges of climate change, based on intensive research and discussion with politicians here in the UK and elsewhere. And it covers some of the framings of climate change that we consider, the barriers to political engagement and action, and it has an excellent action plan at the end of it, explaining how to construct good climate policy. And whether you're involved in that, or whether you're just a climate activist or someone who's concerned about this, that is a blueprint of what to ask for and what to push for. So it's all the better that we have it. Now, we had a very wide-ranging discussion, and Professor Willis was very generous with her time, and we thank her for that. Without further ado, then, the interview. Okay, so first off, Professor Willis, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show. I always like to lead off by asking my guests to introduce themselves a little bit and to talk about how they got to where they are now. So would you like to talk a little bit about how you got involved in climate politics and policy? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm Becky Willis. I'm a professor in practice at Lancaster University. And where does this all begin? Um, Depending on how you measure it. Um, I mean, my interest in climate politics actually started from my undergraduate degree when I had to um, answer an essay about why um, climate change was a harder problem to solve than ozone depletion. So that was um, getting on for 30 years ago, and I've sort of been answering that essay ever since. But I was always I was always into the politics, and um, that's how I that's how I spent sort of the first twenty years of my career working um, with and around government, trying to get better decision making around um, energy and climate and environment issues. And then I sort of took a sidestep a few years ago um, and um, went back into the university sector, and that was that was partly because. I'd done a lot of work with MPs sort of providing training and support on climate and I just became very um, uh, well sort of borderline obsessed with the question of what do they do with the knowledge that they have if you teach them you know and if if if, if you uh, teach them what they need to know about climate and then they sort of shut the door of the training room and walk back into the rest of their lives how you know what can they do with that knowledge how can they operationalize it why do they and why don't they and that became the subject of of uh, my academic research mm-hmm. and i think this is really interesting you know it's interesting that you mentioned the montreal uh, uh the the ozone layer issue because we did an episode that long time listeners will remember two or three years ago uh, about lessons from montreal and how the the world had managed to come to a Montreal protocol, which was very uh, rigid, very technocratic, where they said, we're going to phase out the CFCs. Um, everyone signed up to it. And that worked quite well. And now the ozone layer is essentially healing itself. Um, but the, we talked about some of the comparisons and contrasts between that and international climate change negotiations and uh, how fossil fuels were much more embedded into society, I suppose, and uh, how there were much more inequities in, in how they were used and how it's been so difficult for uh, international democratic institutions um, to actually to deal with a, a system where there are so many different players compared to the CFC's case, um, and we're, so part of why we we are talking about is, is your book "Too Hot to Handle: The Democratic Challenge of Climate Change," uh, which I have here. It's a it's an excellent book if anyone wants to pick it up. Um, but just on that subtitle, 
Do you think that climate change does pose a unique challenge for democratic institutions? And can we talk about some of the reasons why this is the case as well? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really difficult thing for uh, democracies to do. So, you know, it's it's long term. I mean, of course, you know, as you know, the, the effects are with us now and it's urgent. And yet it's also long term in that it plays out over years and decades, not 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 days and weeks and months. So it's long term. Um, it is uh, global and systemic, whereas our democracies are um, national or uh, regional or local. It, it requires people to think as in, in quite a complex way as uh, citizens. Um, it requires them to sort of have the collective interest in their, in their mind. So it, it asks quite a lot of citizens the climate agenda at a time when politicians are maybe reluctant to, to, to make that ask of them. So there are all kinds of ways in which... Um, climate change is a challenge for democracies but i think the um the critical thing here is that you can have two responses to that you can say you know climate change is just too difficult for democracy so we'll have to find uh, an undemocratic route and that's you know something that james lovelock for example the earth scientist suggested when he said we might need to put democracy on hold for a while or you take a deep breath and you say Okay, you know, democracies as they're currently uh, constituted don't work very well for climate. Is the solution actually making democracies worth work better? And is that not only a more? I mean, I would argue that that's you know obviously morally and ethically uh, a, a better option, but actually I think it's more realistic as well. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Just on this long-termism, short-termism issue, I mean, I think we can all get the sense of, okay, emissions need to be cut over the course of probably decades, um, and the direct benefits of, of doing that won't be realised for some decades, when politicians are often thinking about the next election, which is only ever four or five years away, um, unless, of course, you're talking about something like the House of Lords, where they don't have that sort of thing to worry about. Um, I mean, we talk a lot on this show when we talk about uh, catastrophic risks and things of that nature, Um, how important it is to have more long-term thinking. Um, I just wondered if you had any thoughts on, I know it's difficult, but if you had any thoughts on how we could encourage that. You mentioned the House of Lords and the way that other countries have addressed this problem is to set up specific mechanisms or institutions which are actually charged with considering the future. So um, they, they've experimented with this in Hungary and Finland, but actually probably the best existing experiment now is in Wales. So Wales have a commissioner for future generations. They have a Future Generations Act and the public sector is required to take um, future generations into account in, in all of their work. So there's some actually pretty work through sort of institutionalised examples in Wales of, of how you can... Uh, bear the future in mind when you're legislating so that's that's really useful and, and positive I think but it's I, I, I actually think that um, that there's there are a lot of ways of bringing climate change into day-to-day politics as well so mm-hmm. you can do it that way around so if you look actually at what what Joe Biden in his first 
literally few days is doing um he's you know straight out of the blocks on climate um and he's linking it to jobs and uh regeneration from uh economic regeneration after covid so what he's effectively doing there is finding ways of sort of operationalizing a longer term problem and making it into a shorter term opportunity Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting, too, when um, we're talking about this flurry of executive orders that he issued in the first uh, week, even yesterday, I think it was, um, about climate change. And one of the focuses there was on justice as well. And it's this integration of climate with other issues, social issues that in some ways seem even more pressing and more short term. And of course, as as I'm sure we would agree and can talk about, um, these things are all linked together and integrated together. And solving this long term problem does require immediate and short term actions which can have some co-benefits as well. Um, but yeah, I think it's interesting, this idea of whether you have to integrate climate into other issues or whether you can deal with it as its own issue. And even in the structures of government, this is something we've seen, like should the UK have its own climate change department or is it okay for it to be folded into different departments? I mean, there's two ways of looking at that, aren't there? There's, you know, there's the processes and structures of government and climate absolutely needs to be integrated. But I think there's a really interesting question about the politics of this. So, you know, the reason that Biden is is doing what he's doing is because the left in the US have spent the last few years, you know, when they haven't had their heads in their hands, they have spent the last few years um, organising and thinking and advocating. And what they have done is tie climate action very firmly to a set of um, sort of progressive left issues around um, social justice, racial justice, economic regeneration, and so on. That is the essence of the Green New Deal, isn't it? That's, you know, yeah. a very deliberate language there around a new deal and so on. And they've done that really effectively. Um, I, I sometimes worry that maybe it's sort of almost too effective in that um, it has sort of made climate into a, a, a part of that left-wing agenda, um, you know, which is great if that's your politics. But what I haven't seen on either side of the Atlantic, really, maybe we're fumbling towards it here, um, but I haven't seen it with any confidence. I haven't seen it articulated with any confidence. It's a sort of right-wing articulation of how, of what climate politics looks like. So, you know, although... Um, you know, Boris Johnson in this country has repeatedly stressed his support for the net zero strategy, although there are some, you know, the words you might expect around um, technology and um, innovation and opportunity and so on, they haven't actually done the hard graft of thinking through how their climate strategy fits with their aspirations as a party or the aspirations of, you know, 50% of the population roughly who who vote, uh, who tend to vote um, right wing rather than left wing. So I think that's a job that really, really needs doing and that, you know, has been done effectively on the left, but not yet on the right. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And in, in the US, there are some quite considerable challenges and barriers to getting that working. But you've studied in great deal how UK politicians specifically and MPs react to climate change, how they speak about it, both in Parliament and to environmental activists, and through interviews that you've personally had with them as well. And I think a key part of this is, you know, the discussion that we can have on climate change quite often is uh, academic, uh, technocratic, 
it's climate experts, it's policy wonks talking to each other. Uh, we're both on on climate Twitter a bit, and we sort of are familiar with that sphere of things. And uh, lots of these discussions are, are things that I, I bring to my listeners with this show as well. But actually, understanding how that's translated to people for whom this isn't their whole uh, milieu and surroundings, I guess how how the politicians think about climate change, I think, is really interesting. So I'd love to know what you took away from some of these case studies and discussions, how they think of the issue, and what their priorities are, and uh, things that you know surprised or didn't surprise you about how they responded in these conversations? Yeah, so it was a really fascinating set of interviews. I mean, you know, I'd work with I'd work with politicians for, for years. I used to work for politicians. It was one of my first jobs. So I knew the world well, but when I actually got them sort of sat down with a coffee for an anonymous interview, it was really revealing. So I think on the on the on the on the science you know did they understand climate change i mean i think broadly you know they they do understand it maybe they're not as worried about it as they should be maybe it doesn't sort of get them in the gut the way it does if you spend a long time uh, sitting with climate science if you if you're on climate twitter and you think about it all the time the enormity of the science sort of sits with you quite strongly doesn't it and i i don't think they're there but they do understand the nature of the threat um, the problem comes. The, the, the problems come in terms of the, you know, what do we do about it? Question. And I was struck really by how um, how difficult the MPs found it to think about how they would uh, sort of operationalise climate change. And um, you know, there were there were sort of three reasons for that. One is just that the day job is like completely overwhelming. Um, and I'm not saying this to make excuses for them, I'm just explaining. It's like you just get stuff thrown at you the whole time. And um a lot of the MPs were quite confessional in these interviews. They were saying, look, you know, I'm really struggling to find a time to be able to sort of, you know, uh, to, to, to sit back and think, what am I in this for? What, you know, what am I going to actually champion? So that, from that point of view, it's not just climate, but climate is a difficult one to champion for all the reasons that we start with. It's complex and so on. So firstly, it's just sort of overwhelm is an issue. Um, the second, which is possibly the most fascinating finding as far as I'm concerned is that they were worried that they would be seen as uh, that they would be sort of marginalized if they spoke out on climate that they didn't want to be branded as um, freaks or zealots those were their words not mine um, that they wanted to be seen as sort of you know respectable uh, politicians and that if they were too strident on climate change that might count against them and and the last thing that came across pretty strongly was that they didn't think that there was um that there was public support for action now this was actually i finished those a couple of years ago so i, I think that's changed a bit since but you know the, uh, the 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 sort of broad summary on that is that um politicians uh underestimate the con- politicians consistently underestimate the levels of public support for climate action. When you talk about politicians not knowing how to operationalise climate change, one, one thing you, you didn't mention so much was almost the lack of information problem. Is it, is it the case that they broadly know which areas of their remit actually do link to climate change and the implications of that? Or, or, or are there still areas where there's um, information that needs to get to them? I mean, I, I, I find this sociologists might call it the information deficit model this idea that if only we got them enough information they'd be able to make decent decisions um that that just that just isn't how politicians work in fact it isn't how people work the fact is that if they you know 
people have to be motivated to get information um and so um we shouldn't think of it as a lack of fact sheets um we should think yeah, of it as i guess a, they're not hard to come by are they <laughs> No, no, no. I mean, you know, you can, it, it doesn't, for, you know, for someone intelligent enough to be elected to parliament, it's not hard to get to the truth of even really tricky issues like, um, you know, bioenergy. Uh, it's all there, but you've got to, you got to invest. So, I mean, leaving aside that the problems with that information deficit model, what, what I would say, actually, no, this is linked. What I would say is that, is that politicians have been able to get away with not knowing a huge amount because there isn't nearly the same um, sort of scrutiny or media attention. So I've seen this, for example, with um, the, the the coal mine that's proposed near, near me in Cumbria. And there are some sort of zombie arguments about this coal mine that keep coming back, like, oh, we need the coal for steel production. Well, actually, we don't if you dig into it. Um, but it's very easy for people and especially politicians to fall back on these um, these sort of assumptions and, and not really challenge them. And we don't have that level of uh, interrogation in terms of uh, media or even in, in select committees and so on that we might have on, on other issues. It's it's the case that climate change is sometimes seen as a complex scientific and technological issue where technocrats and experts should largely be in control. Um, this extends even to some of the scientific and technical language that politicians use when they discuss it. And of course, a lot of the, the ways that the discourse is shaped by the people who are the scientists and the technicians and so on. But your, your book persuasively makes the case that if we try and leave this solely to the experts and they come up with a solution that they then try to impose from the top down as if the whole world was one of these uh, delightful integrated assessment economic models, <laughs> then we will fail uh, in our objectives. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that people listening will understand uh, that this is the case. But w- would you like to expand on that? And I suppose some of the shortcomings to some of the approaches that we've had for dealing with climate change so far. Up until now, to the extent that we've had some success with decarbonisation, we have succeeded in 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 the more sort of technical spheres. So, you know, we've done reasonably well um, on well, I mean, we've done very well in terms of um, integration of renewable electricity onto the grid. Even though, as you know, most of the energy used um, by human societies is still from fossil fuels. But even so, we've done quite well with renewables. Um, we've uh, we've done okay with um, efficiency, you know, in for in car engines, efficiency in industry, and so on. And all those things can be done, sort of without people noticing more or less but if you look at the challenges ahead you look at um decarbonization of home heating and cooling um you look at um the decarbonization of transport which almost certainly requires i mean obviously a shift to evs but also um changing travel patterns um you look at the changes needed to to diet and to land use there's absolutely no way that you could do that without people noticing. And why even try? <laughs> you know, instead, instead, why, why not actually 
um, you know, this is this is the, the, the idea really behind something like the the climate assembly, which I, I know you've talked about before. Um, rather than sort of pretending that it can all be tidied up and 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 and, uh, and 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 solved without without people noticing, why not actually take that dilemma to people and ask people as citizens, not as consumers ask them um, what they think about, you know, how we should decarbonise transport. What are the options? How would they, you know, affect people's everyday lives in, you know, in some positive, maybe some negative ways? And actually ask them to be um, to be part of defining a strategy that we can all buy into. I mean, that's the point of, um, you know, that's the point of government, isn't it, to to to, to, to develop that sort of social contract between citizen and state so that we sort of, you know, if you go back to the, the very basics of political philosophy, the whole idea is that we as citizens agree to surrender a certain amount of liberty to the state. In return, the state does things collectively for us that we can't do on our own. And, you know, protecting us from dangerous climate change is surely you know, a number one requirement of a state. So, um, sorry, that was a sort of little foray into political philosophy there. But the whole point is that we should be very explicit about that social contract. We should say to people, look, um, we're treating you like grown-ups. You know, we absolutely know that we need to make these... um, uh, cuts in in greenhouse gas emissions. Um, you know, there's different ways of doing this. We want to talk to you about how to do that. We want this to be a collective problem that we're all solving. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And uh, just to talk a little bit more about those different sectors, you know, I'm sure I'm not alone in this. The Committee on Climate Change here in the UK has talked about this. Um, there's a concern that we might be doing the easy bit of decarbonisation um, first and most effectively when it comes to making changes in the electricity sector and this difficult bit, which is the transport, the agriculture, all of these other sectors, where you have many more actors, many more players, uh, the, the heating of homes and, and businesses and so on um, that you have to deal with. And you can't do quite so much from a sort of centralised top down approach. That's where we're getting to now in the UK. And I feel like the UK is a good place to be because we have an option. We have an opportunity to almost be trailblazers in that kind of decarbonisation um, in, in, in ways that... Uh, well, some other countries are still a little bit further behind in, in the power sector and so on. Um, I mean, one, one thing that I think is really important when you talk about the social contract is when people don't know what the social contract is or they don't have the terms of it um, explained to them and even negotiated with them, of course, then that's when you get this disenchantment. That's when you get people uh, not being engaged and not feeling like they're participating in anything that's going on. And it becomes so much harder to collectively direct our efforts towards anything. So I think it's so important. And um, I mean, we know, as we've said, that addressing climate change is going to require this collective action. um, And that requires democratic legitimacy, um, even in authoritarian countries where you might imagine politicians can just impose goals from the top down. There still needs to be some consent from the citizenry or, or powerful people and interests there. And establishing that is important and talking outside of the bubble is important for that reason. So so let's talk about the Citizens' Assembly on climate change then, because we did a couple of episodes on the show describing what Citizens' Assemblies are and then the conclusions of the report from the Citizens' Assembly. Uh, for those who haven't listened, we did about an hour on that. Um, but you were very involved in actually conducting it. 
So would you like to tell me first off what you see the roles of these deliberative bodies as being and then we could talk about the experience of getting involved with it. Yeah, well you were just saying you know you you were just saying about um whether we understand about that social contract that's there and I mean the the, the way that you can think of something like a citizens assembly is as a, as, as a kind of mini manifestation of what what a um a well functioning democratic system should be doing so um you know there's a there's a school of thought uh, around um deliberative democracy which is where you try and you strive for a democratic system which allows people to um which allows people to really think about how they form their views, gives people access to good information, um, tries to reduce the influence of, of, of power and or the undue influence of power and money, um, and and really uh, privileges that sort of decision making process that citizens, um, you know, ideally would do. In, in their in, in terms of their role in democracy um, getting the entire democratic system to work like that is a, is a big ask and so what you can do through things like citizens assemblies which are sometimes called deliberative mini publics is that you can you can create literally a mini public which um, because you control that space you can actually get it to mirror those sort of ideals of deliberation and democracy as much as possible. So that's really what, um, you know, what things like the Climate Assembly aim for, to have a really structured um, discussion in which people can participate in on equal terms, hear really good information, think it through and decide collectively what to do. So would you like to talk a little bit about what your involvement with the Citizens Assembly was like, um, what went well and worked well and maybe improvements for the future? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it's it's quite a, it's quite bizarre to reflect back, actually, because I would say two years ago there was a few of us uh, who were sort of desperately trying to think about how we could get a citizens' assembly up and running on climate change anywhere, anyhow. Um, we'd seen the experiments in in Ireland, and um, you know, we were so excited by the idea of it that we were sort of you know trying to look for the money and the interest and everything. And then suddenly it just it just exploded. Um, there was, I mean, partly, you know, as a result of, of our work. And I think we just sort of managed to surf the mood because um, we um, just before the National Assembly, there was a few local initiatives set up, including a citizens jury in Leeds, which I was involved with. And that was the first time I actually planned out how the process might be. And, and then... Um, I um, formed part of Involve's team to deliver the the, the, the big climate assembly for for um, for Parliament, and it was so interesting to sort of start from the beginning about you know how you would structure a discussion about climate change with 108 people from all walks of life who might not be um might not be that informed about climate might not be that concerned about climate how you would structure the discussion what experts they would hear from how you would um you know how you would 
tackle tricky issues which might be divisive and so on so we had you know a good few planning sessions to think all that out and then and then the kind of um amazing moment was when I walked in that that room in that hotel in in Birmingham so this is just before COVID we were lucky to start off before COVID hit we started in in January so about a year ago January 2020 and I walked into that hotel room in Birmingham and, and literally saw my country set out before me represented by these 108 people and I just thought they are here for four weekends or as we thought four turned out to be three plus the online stuff but you know they are here they've given up four weekends to help us um, try and crack what is possibly the trickiest issue for politics and that that was an amazing moment really. I'm sure for you as a as a researcher into this it's a pretty unique opportunity to do field work you know so so in the discussions with people you know what kind of stood out to you about their concerns and their priorities that they had um when dealing with climate change did you well i think what i what i saw what i learned was that if you give people a job to do and you give them the time and space and the respect um they will they'll take their they'll take that responsibility really seriously and it was amazing to see people you know sitting around tables with people who were very different to them who might you know came from opposite ends of the country who might have very different political views how valuable it is actually to go through a process like that to be part of it how people's thoughts and attitudes um change and shift through that process of deliberation and you definitely find that in the research as well if you track people as they go through a process like this you definitely find that opinions shift and change and that's a good thing because you know that's what as I say ideally that's what we should be doing in our democracy more widely. Yeah I think that's what I really liked about it um this is going to sound like a really silly comparison so I have to apologize but I've been listening to loads of shows and an audiobook about the French Revolution. And uh, in the French Revolution, this all got started because they uh, called up the Estates General, which was like their parliament, um, to try and solve the uh, financial state that the, that the kingdom was in. And then you actually had a sort of deliberative democracy at the start. It hadn't been formed into parties yet. Everyone came with their own opinion. And they came there specifically with a task in mind, which was to solve a problem. You know, how do we solve the problem of well, in their case, it was like the Ancien regime that, that France was in. But in this case, you know, the people are kind of directed to solve, okay, well, we, we have a policy of getting to net zero by 2050. And the sort of direction there is, well, how do you solve it? And so it's inherently constructive. It's not an argument because you're, you're sort of, you're involving people in how best to approach trying to solve a problem. And I think that, that, that is such a long way from the sort of rancor that often, uh, characterizes politics for a lot of people and I think turns a lot of people off politics and I, I just thought that was an aspect of it that that was that was really interesting I, I wonder if you felt the same way about it yeah I mean you're showing me up now because my lack of uh <laughs> knowledge of the French Revolution <laughs> I, th- I thought you'd I thought you'd show me up for my uh for having given up physics pre-GCSE I have to say <laughs> Um, I I thought that was going to be my weak point, but it turns out to be uh, French history. But um, I mean, leaving that aside, yeah, I think I think I mean, from how you describe it, I think that's really a good example of what happens when you give people a 
problem to solve. And something that I've been talking um, about with with um, some researchers I've been working with is how you can actually how these um, how these opportunities actually arise without necessarily you having to create. Um, a, a formal setup like the climate assembly. So uh, Nicole Curato, who's a, 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 an academic that, who works in Australia, but she 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 looks at how um, how communities in the Philippines responded to Typhoon Haiyan, and she says that if you look at the way that communities came together to um, to uh, to respond and adapt to what had happened, it was actually a very sort of inclusive, deliberative process. And it didn't have any of the trappings of Climate Assembly UK in terms of, you know, formal structure or facilitation or, um, you know, aims and objectives or anything. But it was actually, they found a way of including people from all sorts of different backgrounds who could um, express their views on how the country should respond uh, collectively. So I think it's really interesting to think about how we cultivate those, um, cultivate that, that, that approach more generally. And as you say, that is light years away from, um, from the sort of day to day of of, of modern politics and I mean there's a really interesting political thinker called Deborah Mattinson who has um who's, who's described this uh the way that the electorate in the UK at least has been um in, infantilized she says that 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 people are talked to like children um you know for example this idea that we can have you know brilliant public services and not pay much tax you know it's just it's just not credible um and, and and she says that 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 if um you know people are told these things which are obviously not true then they actually turn away from politics so again it's a case of um you know in in, in that case it would be okay you know you want a really well funded nhs or social care or whatever let's look at the options let's work out together how you're prepared to pay for it yeah, I agree. And I think a huge part of the problem with climate change as well is that for a lot of people, there is this sort of ostrich syndrome, you know, it's so big that the actions that you can take in terms of, I don't know, turning off a light or changing the car or something seem so small in comparison to it. And uh, it can seem like such an overwhelming problem. I think you just get a sort of ostrich syndrome and people just want to, you know, stick their head in the sand and say, well, someone else will come along and sort it out or, um, you know, it'll we'll invent our way out of it or alternatively, um, just don't think about it and hope it goes away type problem because there's a, a, a lack of roots to constructive engagement, I guess. And um, I think when when you actually have these discussions about different ways that it impacts people and uh, and kind of involve them in that, I think it, it it's just so much more constructive than um, the sort of approaches of, I don't know, either scaring people or talking down to them about it. Um, the, the Climate Assembly has, has come up with its report and, and that's been submitted now. Um, I, w- I wondered if there are plans to sort of continue uh, w- with its work or kind of follow up on, on what it's done and, uh, and what's happening there. Yeah, so oh, there's, there's, there's loads. So, um, I mean, we did, I think we briefed 400 civil servants altogether, <laughs> as, well as, as well as lots and lots of stakeholder groups. I mean, you know, there's well over a thousand people, I think, came along to individual briefings. Um, there's been 
uh, 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 quite a lot of media interest as well and lots of interest from other countries and um, different parts of the UK as well that want to run similar processes. The one in Scotland is now underway, which is great, although obviously it has to be online, but that's all happening. Um, the thing that I'm really interested in, and that's this is what I'm working on directly now, is how you, you know, it relates back to what we were just talking about, how you actually make this kind of deliberation much more normal in policymaking. So, um, you know, if you're at all close to government, you'll know the kind of hideous process that is the six-week consultation. So government isn't allowed to do anything without consulting. And that means, you know, putting out a really tedious consultation document and giving people six weeks to reply. Well, the people who throw themselves into that are essentially the ones who have an interest in it so you know it'll be the trade associations for climate it'll probably be the 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 big environment groups and that's good you know thank goodness for them um but it's a really sterile process so i'm actually looking at ways that you can build that kind of deliberative approach and build citizen engagement into the the, the sort of everyday policy making process so that's another sort of indirect um spin-off from climate assembly uk and uh, one quick question I have as well is just this idea of legitimacy. I mean, have you had conversations with people who weren't involved in the Climate Assembly on what they thought about it? Because this is one of the things is, you know, when you have these citizens' juries, do people identify with them? And, and is that something we can encourage? Yeah, so I think one difference between the the French Assembly and the UK one is that the French Assembly, partly because it was very much President Macron's baby, um, actually managed much better to reach out to uh you know to um french society more widely more people knew about it it was more sort of topic of conversation than it has been here um i i th- i think you know more of that could have been done here but there's very good evidence to show that um people who haven't been part of a process trust the process if it's explained to them because they trust people like them to have made good decisions it's the same way that you know we trust jury trials if if you can say this decision was or this recommendation was made by a group of people like you or like the country as a whole um then there tends to be um acceptance and support for that decision and that's very different from saying you should do this because the experts tell you to i mean speaking of that there there always has to be a question about covid but your your book sort of details about how when you have these challenges which can be viewed as quite scientific or technical it's so important to have them being part of a broader dialogue so that you get political buy-in from people um in the uk's response to the pandemic we've seen a lot of rhetoric of following the science you know we've seen science communication good and bad taking place um it is of course a different challenge to climate change although people draw parallels i wonder what you made of those parallels between the response to the pandemic and, and climate change and and what has maybe stood out to you from our response as someone who thinks about how democracies handle these scientific crises? The following the science thing is political cover. That's all yeah. it is. I mean, and, and COVID and climate are the same from that point of view in that you absolutely want really good 
um, scientific evidence. You, you know, you, 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 you really need that. You need that about the, the, the nature of the problem, you know, what the virus is and how it's transmitted as well as obviously climate in terms of the nature of the climate problem. You also need really good evidence about the, 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 the possible options for responses. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's a political decision that our leaders have to take on our behalf. And so, you know, I would say two things. Firstly, I would say that politicians have to face up to that. They have to carry the can um, and they can't hide behind the science. And the second thing I'd say is that um, they should, you know, they should they should involve citizens in those decisions. So, um you know, I think it's really bad on on COVID that we haven't had the sort of underlying rationale for, you know, the different tier systems or, you know, when lockdown's introduced or whatever. It's all quite opaque how those decisions are reached. There isn't a lot of citizen participation in those decisions. And, you know, it's obviously hard to get that if you're if you're moving so quickly, but it's still quite possible. So I think there's a lot of, um, you know, I, th- I think COVID has been an example of, of how not to do things in terms of system participation, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was hard at the beginning, but we've been doing this for almost a year now. You would have thought at some point, if people had this as a priority to get citizen engagement, they might have had a chance to do that. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's going to produce a lot of interesting work, people just looking back at this from all sorts of points of view. Obviously, I'm interested in science communication. You're interested in science policy, me too. Um, you know, just trying to figure out the lessons that we can learn from this is is going to be some quite substantial work there as well. Um, in terms of framings of the climate change problem, then, um, I wanted to ask about, because you, you, you talk in the book about this, uh, this idea of a spaceship Earth um, and, you know, global climate targets set by uh, Paris, concepts of a global carbon budget, ideas of uh, planetary boundaries that we have to stay within. Um, and if you could talk a little bit about our sort of attempts to be pilots of Spaceship Earth, you know, we have, I think it's really interesting that we have the UN and multilateral institutions, you know, the UNFCCC and global climate negotiations. Um, and they seem to have moved towards almost a more citizens assembly type approach as opposed to the top-down technocratic approach, right? Because initially we had the Kyoto Protocol, now we've moved to Paris where, okay, it's still at the level of national governments, but it more relies on bottom-up contributions, countries setting their own targets, and there's a bit more of a discursive nature to how those targets evolve. Um, Do you think that the, the Paris Agreement itself is kind of a reflection of this less top-down and more bottom-up style of, of government philosophy? And what, what are your thoughts on that in the international sphere? Yeah, so in the international sphere, I, I think Copenhagen represented the kind of high watermark um, or or should that be lowest ebb? <laughs> Where am I going with my water metaphors here? Um, I, th- I think Copenhagen showed the limitations of that kind of top-down, science-led, expert-led, target-led approach. And I don't for a moment want to say it's not important to have the kind of scientific consensus that you have in the IPCC. I don't for a moment want to say that you shouldn't be having international negotiations. They are absolutely essential. But I think that that kind of spaceship Earth vision is 
is based on a fundamentally wrong assumption that it's possible to to you know govern the planet the way that you might fly a spaceship that there is some kind of um you know privileged position from which you can uh look down and decide on the best course of action for the planet as a whole i mean i find that a really uh, problematic view um so this is less a criticism of the international negotiations that it is than it is a criticism of the sort of planetary boundaries type uh, uh philosophy that you know we as men in white coats and they are mostly men have decided what's best for the rest of you and can you now please implement it and you know i i mean that's exaggeration but not that much i mean i find that ethically really problematic it's just it's also just so at odds with how power and politics works you know democracies operate at the uh nation state level and no higher um the you know it decisions are made best decisions better decisions are made if um people who are affected by those decisions are involved in making them these are pretty uncontroversial truths which are ignored by those sorts of spaceship earth visions mm-hmm. yeah i guess a spaceship is inherently anti-democratic isn't it because like captain kirk gets to fly it and you sort of all have to do what he says yeah it's not actually that maybe the crew gets to complain occasionally but unless they're going to mutiny they don't really have an option to to fly things in a different direction um i mean so do you think that that sort of we talked about copenhagen and the failure of to get a global treaty there do you think that the paris agreement is looking more successful than those earlier approaches i think it's a more realistic negotiating mechanism the idea that um each country should put forward its own um its own nationally determined contribution rather than being set a target from the sort of un um uh, from from the from the top down from the negotiating process i think that makes a lot more sense um but it does throw the responsibility onto individual countries and you know i mean actually at the moment it's not working is it i mean if you add up the Paris pledges, they still take us to definitely above two and somewhere approaching three degrees, I think. Um, there needs to be a lot more ambition coming from somewhere. But I think that we've seen huge increases in ambition over the past couple of years. You know, you see all the countries now with net zero targets. You see what's happened in the US. You see that, you know, in this country we have possibly the most progressive right-wing government on climate that that definitely we've ever had and maybe the world's ever had and you know I mean obviously I have plenty of criticisms of this government believe me um mostly involving coal mines but you know I do have criticisms of this government but at the same time it is you know better than any of its predecessors so the I suppose that you know we'll all be on absolute tenthooks over the the coming months to see whether some of this ambition in the form of targets and rhetoric um, filters down. I mean, it has to, doesn't it? Because what other option have we got? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a few things in your book that I wanted to talk about as well. Um, 
in your descriptions of approaches to climate politics, which maybe aren't so successful. And uh, one of them was the description of the feel-good fallacy in the approach that we often take to climate change, which I think we can all be guilty of. Um, Would you like to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so the feel-good fallacy is basically when you concentrate on all the good stuff and you sort of tuck away the uh, all, all those huge sources of, uh, of 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 greenhouse gas emissions that are just you know too difficult or messy or embarrassing to talk about. Every country does it. Uh, every company does it and you know to a certain extent we're all guilty of that as individuals aren't we sometimes we do that without thinking so you know as, as as individuals in in you know being relatively rich people in one of the richest countries of the world um you know we are we just have sort of structurally we are high emitters and we need to face up to that you know a feel-good fallacy is if you if if you um you know you're really pleased with the the efforts you've made to reduce your footprint without acknowledging that yours is vast compared to um someone from the global south um but what really annoys me is when the feel-good fallacy is used very deliberately and um, very cynically to justify the actions of um, real serious carbon polluters. So, you know, in the Cumbria coal mine, um, their argument is that it's okay to dig more coal out of the ground because it would reduce emissions from um, from transporting coal into the UK from elsewhere. I mean, that is just, you know, it's disingenuous, it's wrong, disingenuous, and, and it just shouldn't be allowed. Um, similarly with I saw recently a um an, an advert by Bristol Airport where they pointed out all the uh carbon that could be saved by um people flying from their local airport rather than driving to London. <laughs> and you know, again, I mean, in in factual terms, that is it is dubious, um, but also it's just so disingenuous, and it's promoting one of the highest carbon um, industries there is, and it's the highest carbon industry that is used by the richest people taking up carbon that cannot then be emitted by some of the world's poorest people, and that you know, that to my mind is 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 outrageous and 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 we really need to call companies out on that Mm -hmm, absolutely and the the other side of this feel-good fallacy is is also what you describe as the stealth strategy so the feel-good fallacy is saying you know don't worry everything that we do to address climate change is brilliant look at all these improvements we're making um look at all of the wonderful things we can do as part of the problem and then in the stealth strategy it's more about we can address climate change in ways that people won't notice um and it has some interesting links to kind of I guess you might call them techno-utopian solutions to climate change as well, where you know all we need to do is kind of do this technical fix behind the scenes. And I feel like there's a really big split in the climate movement at the moment between people who I think are, they're more reformists maybe, they're maybe more optimistic about technology, and they, they think that this is going to be a, a, you know, you just switch the fuel source and that will fix the problem. And then there's another group of people who think, well, no, what this actually requires is a much deeper rethink of how we run society. And I wondered whether you'd like to talk about stealth strategies and also maybe where you find yourself on that spectrum between those two groups of people, assuming you agree with that as a distinction that that you can make in the climate movement as well. 
Yeah, I think the the temptation to sort of, you know, what what you might call a stealth strategy or the, the temptation to sort of tidy things away by saying that technology will solve it. I think it's, it, if anything, it's become part of the discourse more as the climate movement has widened and you see people coming in. So, you know, with Elon Musk and Bill Gates and so on sort of now piling into the climate space. I mean, great that they are, you know, I welcome pretty much anyone. Um, but the um, the tendency of those players to focus on, um, you know, technological solutions and at the very extreme kind of carbon removal like carbon capture and storage or direct air capture uh technologies which i i think are you know which well technologies which are unproven and not commercial and so as a result i think are a big distraction from the central issue so i i think that there is more I, I think you're right that there's more of a gap now um opening up between the sort of extreme techno optimists at one end and then the sort of um the 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 other i don't want to say other extreme um the 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 sort of directly opposed argument which says that the fundamental issue is our economic systems um, and that, you know, unless we, um, I mean, it's a crude way of putting it, but unless we abolish capitalism, we won't solve climate change. And I, I think, you know, I, th I think where I come from this is that I can see the attraction of moving to either extreme because it's simple, isn't it? It's like saying abolish capitalism or do solar radiation management, job done. And actually where I want to start and where I um, you know, think that we should be resolutely focused is, you know, what is the nature of the problem today? What do we do today, next month, next year, assuming that these kind of big fixes aren't going to come and save us? And, you know, there's, um, there's a, a philosopher called Donna Haraway, who I quote in my book, who's <laughs> turgid and virtually unreadable. But she has this phrase, she has this phrase staying with the trouble which is really uh, which which really spoke to me because the point of what i take from that phrase staying with the trouble is that we have to absolutely faithfully keep coming back to what the climate problem is what causes it um you know it's the way our economy works it's burning fossil fuels we have to be um you know with with every sort of solution we propose we have to say is this staying with the trouble is this helping things in this moment or is it just sort of uh, is, 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 is it a distraction? And I think if the more purist you are to either extreme, the less likely you are to be able to, less likely you are to be able to sort of stay with the trouble in all its messiness and complexity. Thank you for that. I think that's a really, really important perspective because I think you're right to say that it, it can be very simple to view this as something where there is going to be one panacea solution. Um, and one of the lines of argument that I think is so important there is just to sort of remember that actually we invent a technology and instantly get our way out of this situation is sort of in some ways maybe as unrealistic as we instantly transform the global geopolitical system, you know, when there's no 
mechanism to do that or theory of change to do that in the next 20, 30 years? Yeah, I think, I mean, what I'd say about those two, you know, either the capitalism thing or the technological savings thing, I mean, I think I think it's fine to hold those views as long as you also have a view for what you would do, you know, what you're going to do today and tomorrow and next month. So, you know, if you don't agree with the capitalist economic system, um, then that's that's okay. Um, but you also need to be doing stuff that works towards that, you know, your 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 goal and that that makes things better in the short and medium term. Same with the big tech breakthroughs. Fine if you want to um, put your faith in those, but not if that's at the expense of of um, you know using tried and tested technologies today. Yeah. So it's kind of, I don't know, have your aspirational goals and hope for the best, but also prepare for reality as it exists and try and deal with uh, what, what's going on now as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, think of it. There's, there's room for both. Yeah. I mean, think of it as, you know, if you think of it as an approach to um, healthcare, for example, we would never get away with that in healthcare, would we? Like, oh, no, we're not going to invest in, you know, in sort of short to medium term um, public health and, and health facilities because there's going to be a wonder drug tomorrow which will make us all you know healthy and, and, and live for eternity I mean that wouldn't wash and the opposite of oh we're all going to be you know really unhealthy until we reform capitalism or abolish capitalism that wouldn't be an answer either I think you know with with um, issues that are sort of much more central to our everyday lives like education or health we don't you know we're not allowed to get away with those sorts of that sort of wishful thinking. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. There, there was one thing that you talked about in the last chapter of your book as well, which was discussing things from the other side. And it f- feeds into what we're talking about here, which is for those of us who want to influence existing institutions, systems, politicians, and so on, and that there's this difficulty and maybe this tension between being a pragmatic influencer who tries to shape and influence things as they are versus a radical influencer who sort of sits on the outside of a system and says, now nah, we need to tear this down, we need to do things completely differently. And in some ways, you can see that maybe some of the people who are on the techno-optimistic side are a bit like the pragmatic influencers, and maybe some of the people who are more on, I guess you'd call it the eco-socialist side, uh, for want of a better term, would be radical influencers. Um, I mean, would you would you like to talk about maybe some examples of the differences between these approaches and whether there's, there's room for both of them as well? Yeah, I mean, there's... there's... Uh, there's absolutely room for both of them. So um, you you always need people to and and organisations who can be absolutely uncompromising. You know, the Greenpeace style, scaling the oil rigs. The you know, Greta Thunberg style. You know, absolutely. This is the problem. Relentlessly focused on that. And then you also need those organisations who can work the inside track and who can convert that kind of political pressure into, um, into uh, you know, what does this politician do today or tomorrow? So those, it, it's a kind of, it's a really complex ecosystem like that. And I think when it works best is when all sides recognise and support the roles that each other plays. Um, I think when it comes unstuck is when um and you know what I've seen is when the when the kind of inside influencer route when you get too wound up in the means and you lose sight of the ends 
So I think that some aspects of, you know, some climate actors have been um, have been guilty of this, that, you know, they're so happy with whatever sort of marginal changes they manage to get through um, that they lose sight of the big picture, which is that we re- we need really ambitious action really quickly. And so I think what we've seen in the past couple of years with the school strikes, Extinction Rebellion and so on, is a kind of a bit of a reset about what the, you know, what the big question is. And I, I think that now's the time for, you know, even those whose methods might be very sort of um, softly, softly, still need quite a... a, a I hesitate to say radical because it's not radical. It's 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 just what's realistic. Needs. Yeah, a realistically radical. Yeah, a realistically radical account of what what needs to happen. So you know, I've um, I I I think that um, that if you are taking the inside track, you need to be asking yourself that question all the time because it's a balancing act for everyone even if you're on the outside track as well thinking okay well if i'm just howling into an echo chamber of people who agree with me and not actually influencing what's going on that that's also a problem isn't it yeah it is and uh, you know that's more of a problem with social media isn't it i mean you know you gotta love climate twitter but but i spend a lot of time chatting to people who agree with me um i, I think that um you know, I, th- I think when the if, if you're talking about the more sort of protesting, campaigning end of the climate movement, I think the challenge for them is to reach out. It's like, you know, going back to our earlier conversation, what's happened so well in the US is the climate movement joining forces with people calling for um, social justice and racial justice. Um, they've they've made those really strong alliances. Um, you can see similar alliances that need to be built on the on the right, um, and it's a, you know slightly different picture in the UK. But I think that the the, the 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 challenge to take that message and to work with um, with with other groups and other constituencies is 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 really um, where we need to be now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so we, we've touched on it a bit, the protest movements that came out uh, in 2019, especially Greta Thunberg, Fridays for Future, the Sunrise Movement in the US, the push on the left there for a Green New Deal, Extinction Rebellion here in the UK and elsewhere. And I think it's really it has brought climate change to the top of the agenda in a way that I personally don't feel like I remember it, it being. Maybe the the closest thing we got was in 2007-8 when the Climate Change Act was being passed, which was when I first started paying attention to this stuff, um, when it was on the news. Um, and the, it, it feels like maybe we're approaching a tipping point for climate action and climate change getting into the political sphere. And then in 2020 and now into 21, we've seen lots of nations and organisations, as you've said, set climate change goals and targets as part of this five-year anniversary of Paris and all this sort of thing. So we have China's net zero by 2060, we've talked about here. We've talked about the UK's targets, uh, Biden's goal, which we're going to talk about in, in the future and so on. And we're, we're maybe getting closer to that realm where if everyone does do what they say they're going to do, we have a shot at, at, at achieving the Paris Agreement, which would be an amazing thing. Um, but, but having these long-term targets in place, you know, you, you have a 10-point plan um, in your book that any good climate policy uh, must answer. And actually having the long-term target in place is just the first on the list of things that people need to do. So once we have these targets in place, assuming that that, 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 that is happening now everywhere, 
what else do we have to ensure? What do we need to do to keep this momentum going beyond just getting things, you know, getting getting a, a target declared and then everything kind of dissipating and uh, and ending up with a gap between rhetoric and, and action? Um, because you have so many great ideas there. I'd really I'd really love you to to talk about them um, for for the audience. Yeah. So I mean. If- <sighs> You really need a target, don't you? Because you need to know where you're headed. Um, But you also need really vocal political leadership. And, um, you know, that that has been lacking. We might be seeing it from Biden now. Um, We're seeing it actually to a certain extent from, uh, from Boris Johnson in terms of his repetition of the target, but not in terms of... Um, implementing that in his sort of vision for the country at all. Um, You need um, citizens to be part of that conversation. You know, you need this, you need to be, you need this to be a two way street between um, citizens and, um, and, and, and state. And then you just need it to be a genuine plan. So, you know, it needs to be internally consistent. You just can't, um, be credible as a country heading for a net zero economy if you are also economically dependent on on fossil fuels unless you have a really clear plan about how you're getting out of them um you know so i mean the the idea i mean i you know i just use the coal mine because it's such a good example but the idea that, that 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 you can claim to lead the way on climate change and then um consent a project that gets nine million tons a year of carbon out of the ground um is 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 just ridiculous i mean there's really good evidence to show that we cannot invest in any more um fossil fuel extraction infrastructure or high carbon infrastructure so we can't have any more oil or gas wells coal mines or airports consented anywhere in the world if we're going to meet paris targets that's not that's not my opinion that is um you know it's pretty very solid um, economists doing the maths so it has to be consistent from that point of view and it can't be outshore um, offshore to other countries and this this is things that these things that citizens understand what in the climate assembly there was quite a lot of um when the citizens developed their own recommendations they they actually pointed out themselves that emissions shouldn't be offshored and it was one of their one of their additional recommendations that they made without any prompting from anyone so you know, they understand that. They understand the, the craziness of that uh, double counting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think it, it's important because we talk about the idea that near-term targets are also needed as well as the, okay, in the UK, we have net zero by 2050. When it comes to the short-termism issue, there's always a concern that the current government knows it won't be around in 2050. Um, so we need a shorter-term target for perhaps 2030, when there might be political consequences for the actors who are still there at the moment. If it's if it's not met, and also that the plan has to be distributed across the different parts of of the government and the different sectors as well, so that everyone is is doing something that ultimately just adds up. I mean, we've talked about internationally trying to get the pledges to add up to Paris, and nationally, you need what each part of your economy is doing to add up to your own national target as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and when so when the Climate Change Act was introduced um, uh, back in 2009, there was an attempt to then uh, get each individual government department to have its own carbon target. And also the idea of carbon targets for local authorities, for local areas was discussed as well. So the idea is that you, the idea was that you'd have the, the uh, nationwide target, but that would be cascaded to different across different sectors and regions. Um 
And that never happened because there was a change of government and it was all Ed Miliband's thinking and he was he was kicked out. Um, but you need that accountability, don't you? You can't the you know you can't just say yeah yeah I I support this target but could someone else please do the work? <laughs> um, you know it's got to be it's got to be shared and it's got to be shared as well so that people see the opportunities and so that you know when you're developing a local economic strategy that you are um that you are thinking about that in terms of the move to net zero that you're not investing in industries that have no future <laughs> and uh, some some of the other recommendations you make that i just want to go through because i think it's really important that people get all of this although of course they should read your book as well um for much more detail on this stuff but um, the idea that, well, okay, you've got the target, but to back that up, you also need someone who's going to independently measure it, measure what you're doing, uh, scrutinize your policy things to see if they're actually making sense and are going to deliver on what you say they will, and verifying that it's actually taking place in the first place. In the UK, we have the Committee on Climate Change, which you know is sort of tasked to do that. Um, and obviously, there should be other areas of oversight as well. I wondered if you feel like that's a good model for other countries to follow and whether there are other examples of what it, it uh, um, of what this is doing at the moment in terms of getting that independent measurement and, and assurance that the, the plans that are being proposed actually do add up to what they say they'll that they are supposed to do yeah so I, th- I think the climate change committee is a really good model and that was as you know as as you'll know that was set up as part of the climate change act um and and and, and it's really important to have that independent um measurement and i think it's something you know talking to um chris stark who runs the ccc they get requests all the time for um conversations with them about how that could work in other countries and i think there are similar institutions in other countries so that's a a really really good model I mean it's only as good as the government wants it to be um you know so in the UK um for the past oh I think it must be at least five years if not longer every year the climate change committee has sort of quite politely pointed out what they call the policy gap which is the you know the gap between um ta- uh, the policies that government has actually committed to and um you know invested in and legislated for compared to um the um and, you know they've added up whether or not whether or not they meet the, the the targets the interim targets and they don't so they've pointed out this policy gap time and time again um it gets to be a problem for an organization like the ccc if they keep pointing that out and and government doesn't start making up the difference, doesn't address that gap. Um, Because, I mean, what can they do? They can, you know, can they take the government to court? Can they, I mean, actually you can, you know, the the targets are legally binding. So presumably someone could do a judicial review of the government on that basis and and, and force it to change its mind. But it, it becomes very murky what happens if a government doesn't follow the advice of its own independent advisors i mean some of the other points you made that i thought were important too is and i mean this the coal mine being a perfect example of this you can't just have the the sunny side um the the happiness uh sorry the feel-good fallacy taking place you actually need to work on the supply side as well and say okay if you're going to be compatible with climate change targets we can't have any more fossil fuel exploration and extraction and eventually we have to phase out it being used as well um and that links into the next point which is the idea of this just transition and that 
governments, if they're going to have democratic legitimacy to do this, and if it's going to fit with other things that they want to do, they need to think about how it impacts different local areas and, and jobs and the, the kind of distributional consequences of, of the plan as well. Um, I mean, are, are these things that, that, are, that are being looked at in, in the UK seriously? And uh, do you have any thoughts on maybe how that could be improved? I mean, I have so many thoughts on how it could be improved. It's kind of like everything I do. Yeah. <laughs> um, but <laughs> sorry, I would, I would, I would say that um, the. I would say that the biggest difficulty with this government's approach at the moment is that they um, treat climate as a sort of separate sphere. So, you know, they will, um, whenever asked about it, will pledge allegiance to net zero and reel off a list of things that they are doing to meet it. And meanwhile, all the other priorities of the government sort of trundle on unchanged. So you can see that in when they were talking about um, the... um, economic recovery plan from COVID, I think they they were, you know, very pleased that they'd set aside, I think off the top of my head, it was two billion pounds for for green recovery. Um, Well, that's just missing the point entirely. It should just be all recovery is green recovery. Um, You know, that's what's going to need to happen if we're going to meet the net zero targets. That's what the Climate Assembly was strongly in favour of, actually. So they can't any more separate out climate from the rest of their agenda so they're gonna you know it comes back to what we were saying about having a a really clear um political story to tell um and um a, a way of building climate into their political strategy and economic strategy yes and just having it integrated with with everything else that's going on so that people don't really view it so much as um a nice extra or a sort of additional thing that you do on top of everything else that you're doing. But it has to really be the implications, the climate implications of everything that you do needs to be thought out and needs to be um, compatible with, with the plan. I think that that's very important. And it's it's going to be, you know, the, in many ways, the the momentum and the, uh, the, the targets being set and the ambition and the fact that it's back in the political sphere is all very exciting for, for those of us who are concerned about it. But the, the hard work of actually doing it um, um, to to a much greater extent in these different sectors kind of starts here. And I think that's where maintaining this democratic uh, engagement and legitimacy is just so, so important, um, which is why your work is also very, very important. So um, I wanted to sort of round off by saying to everyone that um, if you want much, much more insight into these issues and how democracies have tried to handle climate change and how they have uh, failed and succeeded in that and how they should change in the future, then too hot to handle is a, a really really excellent reference on that and the the like like many of these books it doesn't just pose the problem it comes up with solutions at the end which is which is a really really good thing i, I just wanted to ask before uh before we sign off if there was anything else that you would like to recommend people uh read or, or get involved with or if they want to find out more about your work what they can do 
Yeah, I mean, in terms of things to read, I would really recommend the opening statement of the Climate Assembly. It's, you know, less than a page and it, and it really sets it out. Um, so so, so that's a, a, a good one. Um, in terms of following me, I'm on Twitter far more than I should be. Um, that's at Bankfield Becky. Um, and um, I quite often blog for Green Alliance as well. So, um, yeah, plenty of ways to, to, to follow. And uh, thanks very much for having me on. That you're you're very very welcome. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and talking to us about the democratic challenge of climate change, which is a challenge I hope we can all get together and, and solve uh, over well the rest of our lives. <laughs> Thank you very very much for your time today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction, and thanks again to Professor Willis for being so generous with her time. You can find Too Hot to Handle her book through Bristol University Press and online, and the professor links to her research on Twitter at Bankfield Becky. I was a little under the weather for this interview, so I apologise if it was a bit rambly. But the good news is that Professor Willis was also recently interviewed on a new environment and sustainability podcast, which is called the Rising with the Tide podcast. Now, Rising with the Tide podcast, they're interviewing loads of climate change and sustainability experts. They're super on the ball with these things. I mean, they're often interviewing guests that I talk about or plan on interviewing too. So if you want more of this sort of content, then I really do recommend them. And please do give that a listen. You can find the Rising with the Tide podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. As for our show, you can find us on physicspodcast.com. There you'll find the contact form if you have any comments, questions or concerns about the show, any topics that you'd like to hear about. While I'm covering climate change, I really want anyone's questions that they have about this topic to be answered. So please do get in touch there if there's anything that you would like to know. Also on the website, you'll find our episode archive. We're nearing on 200 episodes now. I mean, it's kind of amazing when I think about it, how long this has been going. And that means that there's plenty of different content across all sorts of different topics, uh, from our news episodes in thermonuclear takes, to the birth of stars, to the end of the world, as we like to say, uh, the climate episodes, and dozens of other interviews that you can listen to. So please do go and check through the archive there find an episode, and hey, one thing you can do to help out always is to tell your friends who might be interested in listening to this show to give it a listen, give it a chance, send them an episode they might be interested in, and see what they think. Other ways, of course, to support the show include the Patreon. Now, the Patreon is still going with many, many of the uh, early release episodes of shows that will come out on the main feed later, and also some special bonus episodes that you can only get there, so it's a good thing to subscribe to if you want some more content from me. Now, you can find that on patreon.com slash physicalattraction. And the subscription can be any value of uh, currency that you like and essentially gives you access to probably about 20 early release episodes. So most of the episodes that will come out this year uh, instantly and many of the episodes that I'm editing, uh, as listeners will know who've listened to them already because they've got them there, um, they, they come out on the Patreon first. So if you want to get hold of stuff, you can do it there. And you can also get in touch with us on Twitter, the hell site that is Twitter. We're there at PhysicsPod. Uh, take a look there if you want to see a combination of me tweeting about the stuff that I, uh, <laughs> the stuff that I cover on this show, and just occasionally things that have absolutely nothing to do with it. Until next time, then please do take care.